from Pittsburgh to Harrisburg, Erie to Sealands Grove, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, have you opened your December electric bill yet? If not, better sit down when you do. The cost of electricity has skyrocketed. Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation is here to explain why. Tis the season for giving, and your local food bank is a good place to start. Joe Geiger has Joe Arthur of the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank in the Community Benefit Spotlight. And two U.S. Senators have developed an immigration plan that would secure the border and provide a pathway to citizenship for those brought here as children. Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania has details on this week's Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. The battle over control of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives continued this past week as Republican leader Brian Cutler was sworn in during a public ceremony declaring himself to be majority leader. This comes one week after Democrat leader Joanna McClinton was sworn in during a secret ceremony and declared herself to be majority leader. Democrats won one more seat than Republicans in the recent November election. However, one of those Democrats died days before the general election, and subsequently, two Democrats elected to higher office resigned, giving Republicans at least a temporary majority. At issue is who is empowered to schedule special elections for the three vacant seats. All three tilt Democrat, but those votes don't actually count until the special elections are held, likely sometime in February. Governor-elect Josh Shapiro will break with tradition and take his oath of office at Rock Lidditz in Lidditz, which is located just south of Harrisburg in Lancaster County. The East Plaza of the State Capitol Building has been the traditional site for the swearing-in of new chief executives, but Shapiro and Lieutenant Governor-elect Austin Davis have opted for the indoor venue. That likely will be a popular choice for those witnessing the ceremony, as past inaugural ceremonies have taken place outside in typically freezing January weather. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. All across Penn's Woods, electric bills are stunning consumers, many of whom are already struggling with energy costs. For a look at the policies behind the rate hikes, we turn to Elizabeth Stell. Elizabeth is Director of Policy Analysis for the Commonwealth Foundation. Elizabeth, welcome back to Lincoln Radio Journal. Elizabeth, I went home from work the other day. I got the mail. I opened up my electric bill and... Oh, my. Uh, the cost was up considerably. How high have electric rates gone here in the Commonwealth? Well, Loman, you're not alone. I'm looking at a pretty hefty electric bill myself. And uh, what we've seen is a consistent increase in electricity bills throughout the state uh, for the past two years, especially uh, in the last half of 2022. But on average, consumers are looking at a 73% increase from December 2020 to December 2022. 
Has this been consistent? There are obviously different electric companies around the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I'm assuming they've all gone up, but have some gone up more than others? That's correct. There is some variation. If you are out in the Philadelphia area, you're looking at about a 55% increase over two years. But if you're in the capital region around Harrisburg, you've seen prices almost double. And this is just for the generation of electricity. So it doesn't account for 100% of your bill, but you sure see it uh, in terms of the rates that you're paying uh, every month. And then there are um, some other areas that are in between, but generally speaking, everybody's looking at a around a 75%, if not higher, increase in what they're paying over the past few years. And of course, this is on top of higher gas prices and inflation on you know, everything you buy at the grocery store. So it's really adding up. You did reference inflation, which is up, maybe ticked down just a little bit over the past month, but still pretty much at historic levels. What beside inflation is contributing to this? Because as you mentioned, the price almost doubled for generation in some areas. What's driving that significant increase? Well, most of the electricity in Pennsylvania is produced by natural gas. So what we're seeing is a significant increase in the market price for natural gas. As that commodity goes up, the price of electricity goes up. And this is compounded not just by inflation, but also by the policies that we're seeing at both the federal level and the geopolitics worldwide uh, with the war in Ukraine. There are bidders that have to compete now against Europe for natural gas, um, and that's just driving up the price as well. There's some uh, analysis that says this is sort of the, the peak, and we're going to begin to see natural gas rates go down, but we're not sure yet. So for now, Pennsylvanians are looking at significantly higher electric bills. So we're looking at that, but Pennsylvania, Elizabeth, is an energy exporting state. We have natural gas, we have coal-fired power plants, we have nuclear plants. Why is it that our rates are going up when we're the ones that are producing the electricity? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, We're an energy powerhouse, um, second probably only to Texas, in terms not just of how much electricity we generate, but how much electricity we export, especially um, we're you know, at the top. So why is this happening? Um, again, some of it is just uh, market conditions uh, that you couldn't really foresee, but some of it is also bad policies in Pennsylvania. We have an extremely strict regulatory regime that uh, makes it very difficult to drill for natural gas or um, to mine the coal, to transport those materials. It also makes it extremely difficult to build infrastructure like pipelines, which are the safest way to get the natural gas from the place where it is extracted to the power plants that then generate the electricity. So it's those things combined that really drive up, not so much drive up, limit the supply, I should say, of the energy that we need to fuel our homes and our businesses. Pennsylvania has historically been a coal-producing state as well here, Elizabeth, and we do have some coal-fired power plants. What is the situation with those power plants? Are they still producing electricity? And given the war on fossil fuels that's taking place at both the federal and state level, what's the future look like for those plants? Well, coal is phasing out, and it's a combination of things, but in terms of government policies, the federal government really has a larger role to play here in terms of adding, you know, just one set of new regulations after another on these plants to the point where it no longer makes economic sense for them to continue to operate. They can't make a profit anymore. So we've seen a couple of significant plants in terms of the size 
uh, the amount of electricity they generate, announced that they will be closing in the next couple of years. And, and that's just a continuation of a much longer trend that's been going on for decades. But what really accelerated that trend, apart from the federal regs, is the extraction of natural gas, the boom that we've seen in natural gas production here in Pennsylvania. So it's those two things combined. But um, I'd say the phase-out that we're seeing coal plant production is is definitely accelerated by a lot of the regulations coming from Washington, D.C., we are talking with Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation. We're talking about the fact that electric rates, home heating rates, everything going up in Pennsylvania. As significant as the increases have been so far, there could be more to come. And we can lay it at the feet of something called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI. We have talked about it on the show before, but for those who may be unfamiliar with the term, what is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative? Yes, yeah, so this is uh, essentially a carbon tax. It's a group of states that got together and decided that they were going to create a marketplace for carbon. And so in order for a utility to um, produce electricity, they have to uh, pay for these carbon allowances, pay for the privilege of emitting a certain amount of carbon. So all that really does is increase the cost of generating electricity and energy, and that, of course, gets passed on to the ratepayers and to you and I and all those people paying their electric bills. So what this all means for Pennsylvanians is a significant increase in their um, electricity rates, and there's been a couple of different um, studies on uh, what the cost would be. One of the most recent ones estimated that uh, residential electricity rates would increase by about 24 to 36%. So if you look at just that conservative and the 24% increase on top of what we're already experiencing, you're talking about an average increase since 2020 of about 114%. So electricity more than doubling in Pennsylvania because of this this Reggie, uh, this interstate compact. This Reggie compact has been implemented or is about to be implemented in Pennsylvania because Governor Wolf is doing so by executive order, by regulation. It is essentially a carbon tax, which should be under the purview of the General Assembly. Why hasn't the General Assembly done something to put an end to this since it's under Republican control? That's an excellent question. And this is actually um, part of what we're looking, what we're working on right now for the new legislative session. The legislature has consistently um, attempted to, to stop this carbon tax. They've claimed that this is a taxes must be approved by the legislature, by the most democratic branch, elected branch of government, not um, done, you know, through regulators and, and unaccountable bureaucrats. But what happened is uh, they, they, they did this thing called a disapproval resolution, which says, you know, we disapprove this regulation, it will not move forward, and the governor simply vetoes that. The governor vetoes that, and the regulation continues. What we're trying to do right now in the legislature is uh, get a question put on the ballot to the people of Pennsylvania asking them whether the legislature can disapprove of a regulation and, and have it not subject to a veto by the governor. Because it seems to us that, you know, if, if the legislature is predominantly opposed to something the governor is doing, there should be, there should be a check on the governor's power. Um, I think we all experienced quite enough of unilateral rule in 2020 that we all appreciate the, the process of, of um, something going through our elected representatives. 
So we're trying to change that loophole so that things like Reggie can never get through again without the consent of a majority of our elected representatives. Speaking of governors, we are about to have a new one. Governor-elect Josh Shapiro will be taking office. And Elizabeth, he's sort of been somewhat for Reggie, somewhat against Reggie. We're not real clear. What do you see? What can we expect from Governor Shapiro on the energy front as he assumes office? Yeah, it's it's difficult to say with Governor-elect Josh Shapiro because he sort of he sort of straddled the fence, you know, saying that hey. Um, I'm going to work with the legislature on Reggie. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> that mean uh, uh, work with them to implement it, work with them to appropriate the the revenue from this carbon tax, or or does it mean work with them to stop it? It's very unclear. And and what's even more concerning is that in the past he has been in support of further restrictions on natural gas drilling. He's been in support of a lot of policies that would make it more difficult and more expensive to extract energy in Pennsylvania. Elizabeth Stell is Director of Policy Analysis at the Commonwealth Foundation. And Elizabeth, tell us a bit about the Commonwealth Foundation. Also, where can we find you on the web? Sure. You can find Commonwealth Foundation at commonwealthfoundation.org. We have um, this whole analysis of the electricity rates here and lots of other information on Reggie and related issues. Um, And we're also on Twitter at Liberty4PA. um, And we're on Facebook as well at Commonwealth Foundation. So feel free to check us out. And we're putting up, we'll be putting up lots of content, especially in the next few months here as we get up and running on the new legislative session. Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation. Elizabeth, thank you for being back with us. My pleasure. All year long, but especially at Christmas time, food banks are filling the needs of thousands of families, but they need your help. Joe Geiger has Joe Arthur of the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank in this Community Benefit Spotlight. Thank you, Loman, and thank you, Joe, for being a guest on the Lincoln Radio Program. Thank you, Joe. Joe, share with our listeners, if you would some background on Central Pennsylvania Food Bank, and you might want to talk about that there are several food banks throughout Pennsylvania, but today we'll be talking about yours. Central Pennsylvania Food Bank is a proud member of a national and a statewide network of regional food banks. And here in the state of Pennsylvania, we have nine food banks that fit that description. Ours is the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank serving the Susquehanna Valley But together around the state, we work with over 3,000 community organizations, pantries, soup kitchens, church pantries, uh, and many more to bring food to people that are hungry, to people that are in need. Very proud to to do this work for sure and and proud that we operate as as a network, not as competitors. That's a lot of coordination. Joe, how long has Central Pennsylvania Food Bank been operating? This movement really got going in the early 1980s after the first World Food Day was declared. And uh, at that time, trying to uh, get surplus food that was going to waste to people in need. And 40 years later, that's what we're doing, but on a much, much larger scale. Can you give us a little bit of a thumbprint or, or picture of what a normal week looks like in the food bank and how it changes at the holiday? At our food bank, Central Pennsylvania Food Bank, a normal week is moving over a million pounds of food, surplus food, from our big food donors, companies, uh, businesses, farms, you name it, grocery stores, of course, the grocery store system, uh, the USDA, the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. So over a million pounds a week 
to get that to people in need. And when I say people in need in central Pennsylvania in a given month, that'll be something like 175,000 people in a month. How are you being affected by what's happening with the, the job force these days? We have about 130 employees total that are actually on the payroll. And then we work at the center of uh, last year, we had over uh, 15,000 volunteers. That force of 130 is pretty good size. That, that makes us, uh, I guess, a large employer in the eyes of the of the feds. So we are better at retaining our employees than the vast majority of organizations. We work really hard at that. As a nonprofit, we we do pay competitively because we're we're in the food industry, we're in the logistics industry. So that's actually who our competitors are for employees. So we have good benefits, good pay, um, but we work really, really hard to keep our employees connected in our mission and to show them that we really care about them. But there have been challenges. South Central Pennsylvania is a logistics hub. So pretty much every week or two, we have another million square foot warehouse going up somewhere around here a lot of third-party logistics. So uh, we're, we're really thankful that so many people are able to be hired into that industry, but it does make it very competitive for us. So, you know, like I said, we've been uh, bearing up pretty well. We do well at retaining people, but every day is, uh, is challenging in the, in the employment world. This is Joe Geiger on the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is Joe Arthur, the Executive Director of the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. Digging a little deeper into the the economic climate and what's going on in the country these days. How do you maintain the assets, the incoming assets? It sounds like you, you use a lot of volunteers with a staff that size for the amount of work getting done. Do you prefer food or financial contributions? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And actually, we prefer all of the above, if we can put it that way. So, But this mission, uh, we are blessed that this fiscal year that we're in right now, we'll probably distribute somewhere between 62 and 65 million pounds of food. Most of that donated from our our big food business partners. However, the challenges that uh, we have right now, first of all, demand, uh, were it not for the peak of the pandemic, this would actually be record high demand right now, right? The only time it's been higher was the peak of the pandemic. So, What's impacting people and and households is the story of 2022, right? Inflation. So household inflation, making it harder for families to make ends meet. One of the areas where you can get help is with your groceries, with food assistance, and, and we are there. But demand is very high. But on the other side of the of the work here on the sourcing side, we are still dealing, and the entire food industry across the world is dealing with supply issues. So we're downstream from that. So the surplus in the system is reduced compared to uh, pre-pandemic. So we're in a position of buying more food. We always buy food, but the last year or so, it's at much elevated levels and at higher costs. So we focus on, on healthy foods. Thankfully, Uh, We are in a great region for getting produce, not only a growing region, but because of the transportation complex, the Philadelphia port is nearby, and we have amazing sources of of bulk produce. But uh, we do have to pay some for that. It's um, it's at deep, deep, deep discounts, but 
when you're dealing in millions of pounds, it, it racks up a lot of cost. And of course, we have a logistics uh, team. Those 28 trucks I mentioned have drivers in the seats and, uh, and so on. So we're dealing with inflation as well. So we're leaning hard on our donors, raising money. We're in the holiday season, which for us is a time of great blessing from donors. So our ask of donors in this season is lean in a little bit harder this year, uh, donate a little bit higher. And if you're new to fighting hunger, we welcome you. Uh, please stay with us. Still a crisis out there for a lot of families. Donate so we can keep up uh, keep up this good work. Joe, at the end of the day, how do you know you're making a difference? Uh, Joe, we know that every day, whether it's looking at the data, which can get a little bit dry, or just speaking to people that are using our services. We're doing a much better job of, of listening to our neighbors that we're serving, doing surveys with them, speaking to them in person. And you cannot imagine the gratefulness that, that we hear about every day. I personally talk to uh, folks that, that we serve. One of my favorite things to do is to be at a distribution. During the holidays, I'll, I'll probably get to seven or eight or nine of them in these couple of weeks and really talk to people. And I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy that. I real, They're in a tough position, but people are thankful, and our donors need to know that, that it's really people helping people. And uh, so we know this, this has an impact. We know that if we weren't here, so many of those families, thousands, would be going hungry, even over the holidays when we kind of take it for granted. You're a year-round program, and people tend to be more generous around the holidays, but you're going to need these kinds of contributions year-round. It, it doesn't slow down. People don't eat at Christmas time, and then they're satisfied for the year. So let's encourage people to take a look at your program and contribute as generously as they can. This is Joe Geiger in the Lincoln Radio Program. My guest today is Joe Arthur, the Executive Director of the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. Joe, thank you for being a guest on the program. Joe, thank you so much for helping us get the word out. Back to you, Loman. The illegal immigration crisis at the southern border is getting worse by the day, and it is time for Congress to take comprehensive action to deal with immigration. We turn now to Ashley Klingensmith from Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania for a Lincoln Radio Journal commentary. As we prepare to gather with family this holiday season, many traditions will be renewed for another year, and in many cases with new family members who will eventually carry these traditions to the next generation. For my family, the Feast of Seven Fishes has been a Christmas Eve tradition since the Siska family traveled to America from Naples, Italy in the late 1800s. My grandfather settled in the Pittsburgh suburb of Sharpsburg, opening a small business, Sharpsburg Hardware, and devoted much of his time to the community through his work as a Hospital Foundation board member and county Rotarian. That immigrant-inspired tradition and community investment is not unique to my family. Indeed, many of you listening have similar stories. Welcoming immigrants who are motivated to improve their lives and contribute to society enriches America as their ideas and talents drive progress and improve the lives of others. Ideally, America is open to 
everyone who is motivated to make the country better off and nobody who will take advantage or do harm. At Americans for Prosperity, we are prioritizing transformative immigration policy to focus on welcoming motivated immigrants, establishing clear and robust avenues for legal immigration, and enhancing enforcement measures to protect against those aiming to do harm. With border crossings approaching their highest levels in over two decades and the unconstitutional Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, likely being struck down, Senators Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Kristen Sinema of Arizona are working toward a plan that restores control over our borders in exchange for a solution for DREAMers. This nonpartisan leadership is the only way we can permanently restore accountability when enforcing our immigration laws. The proposal calls for increasing U.S. Border Patrol staff. Tillis and Cinema are seeking input from security officials and other stakeholders at the border, which is why the framework includes record investments to ramp up staffing of agents. Research from the University of Michigan finds that every 10% increase in hours spent patrolling the border reduces unlawful crossing by as much as 8%. Second, the Tillis Cinema Framework corrects misaligned incentives that encourage frivolous asylum claims by investing resources in the asylum system to ensure those with frivolous cases are swiftly rejected and removed so that our humanitarian systems can be utilized as they were intended. As asylum claims pend for years, applicants can knowingly file unsuccessful claims while reaping the benefits of living in the U.S., the 2019 asylum crisis alone diverted as much as 60% of our Border Patrol agents from their routine surveillance duties in order to process applicants, leaving many parts of our border unmanned. And third, the framework provides DREAMers a 10-year path to lawful, permanent residency, but only for applicants who have lived in the U.S. for years, pass a clean background check, and meet particular work and education requirements. Given that there are over 200,000 U.S. citizens who are married to a dreamer and over 750,000 citizen children with at least one dreamer parent, failure to pass a lawful alternative to DACA would inflict hardship on thousands of U.S. households across the country. A November poll found that voters across party lines, 73% overall, including 70% of conservatives, support Republicans and Democrats working together now on immigration reforms that strengthen border security, allow immigrants brought to the U.S. as children to earn citizenship, and ensure a legal, reliable workforce for America's farmers and ranchers. To learn more, visit americansforprosperity.org. I'm Ashley Klingensmith, State Director with Americans for Prosperity Pennsylvania. Find us on Facebook by searching at PAAFP, and you can follow us on Twitter by searching at AFP Pennsylvania.
If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. For 27 years, Lincoln Radio Journal has been heard on public affairs-minded radio stations throughout the Commonwealth, including WBXQ-FM, WKMC-AM, and WBRX-FM, all in Altoona, Pennsylvania. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal. Plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.